My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders. Have you ever attended an orchestra concert? When the musicians first come on stage, there's a cacophony of sound as every musician goes through their own warm-up routine simultaneously. One might play scales, another might just play soft notes, another rehearses select passages from pieces on the program. There's no rhyme or reason among the musicians. There's no unity among them. But when it time, comes time for them to get in tune with one another, perhaps you've noticed what they do. They do not listen to each other and try to get every instrument to line up with every other instrument. No, what they do is everybody stops playing and then the oboe plays an A calibrating their pitch to a mechanical tuner usually on the stand. And then everybody else listens to the oboe and tunes their instrument to that. And when the process is complete, the orchestra is considered to be in tune. And it can proceed with a remarkable unity of pitch. This process of tuning an orchestra serves as a metaphor of how to build unity in the church. Sometimes our efforts to promote unity are doomed before they even get started because we start them in the wrong place. The way to build unity is not to have everybody listen to each other and try to somehow get themselves aligned with one another. It's a good thing to listen to each other, but we can't all get aligned just by doing that. No, the way to build unity is to listen to Jesus, the one who lives in perfectly calibrated unity with his father. Jesus is the oboe. And when each of us gets in tune with him, we will look around the stage and find that we delightfully happen to be in tune with one another as well. So this morning, I would like to show you how this works from the end of Ephesians chapter 1. We're on page 917 of the church Bible as we work our way through this letter. And here in this passage, the Apostle Paul prays for his readers in light of all the blessings that God has poured out on them in the first part of the chapter, which we covered last week. And the main thing I hope you get out of this passage is that a clear sight of God is the power for Christian unity. A clear sight of God is the power for Christian unity. We don't have to worry about any other fancy programs out there or any potential counterfeits. We won't empower true unity in any other way than by aiming for every one of us to get a clear sight of the unity of God. To get more specific, you can see in our outline that there are first three things we must see. This will be the clear sight of God I'm talking about. And then there are two gifts from the Father to help us see, and finally, one result for those who see. Let me pray now and ask God to help us see. 
Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would please enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might have the knowledge of God and have a clear sight of you. That from that we may grow together and be built up in faith and love in unity with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. And as I read, listen especially at the start here for the three things Paul wishes his readers to see. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, In the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this paragraph is essentially a prayer, and the heartbeat of that prayer is in verses 18 and 19. So, we're going to begin our study there. And it might not sound like it's talking much yet about unity, so please bear with me as I hope to bring us back to that big idea of the letter by the end of the sermon. So Paul prays in verse 18 for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. He wants them to see something, something bright and prominent. And he doesn't want them to see it with their eyeballs, but with the eyes of their hearts. In other words, he wants them to believe something. He wants them to be gripped by something. He wants them to fixate their entire sense of self and well-being on something. And in verse 17, that something is called the knowledge of him. But he expands it into three somethings in verses 18 and 19. What does he want them to see? What must they know about God? He wants them to know... Verse 18, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. So there are three things he wants them to see so they can know God. He wants them to see hope, inheritance, and power. This is what he desperately wants them to see. And so this is what I likewise want to help you to see this morning. 
Let's go through these. First, letter A, we are defined by a new hope. Verse 18, Paul wants the Ephesians to see their new hope in Christ to which they've been called. And so I want you to see your new hope in Christ to which you have been called. And what is the hope to which he has called you? Well, he doesn't explain it here. That's because he already explained it up in the first part of the chapter. So he doesn't elaborate on it here. He, he worked on this through verses 3 through 8 in particular, but on into verse 14. So let me remind you of what we saw there so you can see it again. The hope of your calling refers to the fact that for those who trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father chose you, God the Son redeemed you, and God the Holy Spirit sealed you. So as we go back over this first part of chapter 1, he talked about how God the Father chose you to be a part of his special people. Before the foundation of the world, before you could do anything good or bad, he set his affection on you to make you holy and blameless. But not only did God the Father choose you, God the Son purchased you with his precious blood. You see, God is not disappointed with you. He does not reluctantly associate with you. No, God the Son paid for you with his own precious blood. And so your violation of God's law has been taken off the books. It has been blotted from the record. And now God the Holy Spirit has sealed you to guarantee your inheritance. God's people will one day inherit the whole world as the message of God's kingdom goes out to every tribe, nation, people, and language. That's your recap from last week's sermon. This is the hope of your calling. In short, if you would but hope in Christ, you are no longer what you once were. And I'm giving you a preview now because he's going to elaborate on that even further in the very next passage in chapter 2. You are defined by your membership in God's new family, what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done for you. You are no longer defined first and foremost by things like your nature. Whether you are tall or short, overweight or skinny, female or male, healthy or chronically unwell, a person of color or white. You're not defined first and foremost by any of that. You are not defined by what you have done. Whether you are educated or uneducated whether you are trustworthy or untrustworthy, whether you are sexually immoral or compulsively arrogant or whatever else you have wrestled with, you are not defined primarily by these things. And you are not defined by what has been done to you, whether you've been abused or betrayed, neglected or pampered, bereaved or honored. 
These things don't define you. Now, all of these things matter. I'm not saying that we pretend that any of these things aren't real. They're real things that matter. But if you hope in Christ, none of these things defines you at your core. None of these things is the essence of your identity. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope to which he has called you. It's that your new identity in Christ Jesus is that you are chosen, holy, blameless, redeemed, and sealed. I have been praying for you that you would be able to see this hope more clearly than ever this morning and as you continue to dive into Ephesians. We are defined by a new hope. The second thing we must see is that we become a glorious inheritance. See, at the end of verse 18, Paul wanted the Ephesians to see the riches of God's glorious inheritance. And so I also want you to see the riches of God's glorious inheritance. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, in verses 10 through 14 earlier, Paul spoke a bit about an inheritance. He spoke about the inheritance which we will receive. And Dan spoke about it last week. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment on this inheritance. It includes inheriting the whole world. But I actually think that here in verse 18, Paul is talking about something a little different. Because in verse 14, he says that the inheritance is something we do not yet possess. It is something of which the Holy Spirit has become a down payment until we acquire possession of it. But here in verse 18, there is an inheritance he prays for you to see with the eyes of your heart. It's something that must already be in place for you to be able to perceive it even though you can't see it with your eyeballs, physically. The crucial observation here, I think, is to notice that Paul does not say the riches of his glorious inheritance for the saints. You see what he says? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, I don't think that in this verse he's talking about the inheritance that God gives to his holy people, the saints. He's talking about the inheritance that God receives. That inheritance is the saints. This is God's inheritance, which is in the saints. The special people that he has set aside for himself. We can certainly feel at times as though God has turned against us and become our enemy. There are times in life when when you feel the earth drop out from beneath you and and you can feel yourself plummeting endlessly without any handholds. And it is especially in those times that we need people to pray for us that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to perceive, to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
You see, regardless of how your life may feel during the difficult times, Jesus's inheritance is the saints. His eternal reward is you and me. Jesus had all glory with the Father before the world began. The only thing he did not possess until after he died and rose from the dead was the people upon whom he had set his affection. And he had to go and die so he could win them. He had to buy them back out of slavery to their sin. He had to secure his bride. And brothers and sisters, you are the riches of his glorious inheritance. And I have been praying for you that you would be able to see this inheritance more clearly than ever this morning. And as you continue to dive into this book of Ephesians. The third thing. Paul wants us to see is that we have access to incomparable power. This is the third thing he wants them to see at the end of verse 19. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Notice how Paul stacks up his adjectives here. Go back to grammar class. This is not just power, but this is immeasurable greatness of power. And so we ought to ask two questions. What makes this power so great? And second, what makes that greatness so immeasurable? Okay, let me tackle those in order. Because... These are helpful questions here because Paul's using these words, but also Paul has spoken about hope earlier in the chapter. He's spoken a little bit about inheritance earlier in the chapter, but he has not yet spoken about power. This is a new idea he introduces here. So he goes on in the next few verses to develop it for us so that we can see it with the eyes of our hearts. First, he explains why the power is so great. The end of verse 19, he says, this is the working of his great might. And why is it so great? Because verse 20, this is the same power that the father used to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So what's so great about this power? This is the power of life against death. This is the power of life over death. This is the power of life that never ends, putting to death humanity's greatest enemy, death, once and for all. You see, before Jesus had risen from the dead, nobody had ever done that before. Now, some of you are questioning what I just said, that nobody had ever done that before. Your mind is reviewing all the stories from both Old and New Testaments about all the people who came back from the dead. But please understand that coming back from the dead is not the same thing as resurrection to new life. Because all of those others who came back from the dead in the stories you may be reviewing in your mind, every one of them eventually died a second time. Not one of them is still with us today. 
And so coming back from the dead was a mixed blessing. It seems great. It seems amazing. Until you get sick again. And you're betrayed again. And you get lied to again. And you hurt other people with your own foolish choices again. And your body runs down and deteriorates a second time. And then you die again. But you see, there's something different here. God used his power to resurrect Jesus from the dead, granting to him a new and improved body that can never again die. And so the resurrection of Jesus was the single greatest demonstration of power the world has ever seen. Not only that, but God also used his great power to seat Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. God the Father has all authority and dominion over the kingdoms of the earth. And he has now shared that authority and dominion with his son, Jesus Christ. He literally lifted Jesus up. Jesus' own followers saw him ascending from earth up to heaven. Not to communicate that the material world is bad and he had to get away up to the immaterial world, which is good. No, that wasn't the point. The point was simply to show us that what we can see with our eyeballs is not all that there is. There's something more to see with our hearts. And God used his great power to bring heaven and earth together in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he rose from the dead and there he is physically up in the heavenly places at God's right hand now. So we puny humans can now have access to the heavenly places through him. Just keep reading into chapter 2 where Paul explains that God didn't do these things with Jesus alone. Not only was Jesus raised and seated in the heavenly places, as he says here, but in chapter 2, he's going to say, we also were raised with him, and we also were seated with him in the heavenly places. Friends, this is power unlike any other power. Do you think the American military has power? Well, how many nukes would you have to launch to defeat death? Do you think a space shuttle jet engine has power? Well, how much horsepower would be required to reunite heaven and earth? Do you think the president of the United States or the news media have power? In ancient Ephesus, they may have thought that Jesus was just one of many deities and not a very popular or powerful one at that. But in light of what God is doing in Jesus Christ, none of these earthly or spiritual powers really seem all that significant anymore. This gets us to our second question about power. Because not only did he tell us how great God's power is, but now he explains how immeasurable that greatness is. In verse 21, he says, Jesus is now seated as king far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion. He is above every name that is named, both in this age 
and in the age to come. And in verse 22, he says that all things have been put under Christ's feet. Friends, in these verses, Paul lumps together every person that has ever lived and ever will live. Every institution that exerts power over people. Every government that rules or reigns. Every insurrection that triumphs. Every angel and demon and false god worshipped by either ancient people or modern people. At every place on earth. At all times in history. And then at the end he throws in every powerful thing that hasn't even existed yet. But will come to pass for the rest of time. Put all of that together. Add it all up. Go ahead. Get your calculators. And in verse 21 he says. Jesus is far above all of it. Seriously. What unit of measurement could you even use for that kind of power? Horsepower won't cut it. You can't measure this in gigawatts or newtons or even by the number of citizens subject to him. It's simply uncountable. It is immeasurable. Brothers and sisters, this is the immeasurable greatness of this power. And now, please, get this. Verse 19. He directs the full weight of that immeasurably great power. Verse 19. Toward us who believe. There is no such thing as a powerless Christian. There is no such thing as a believer in Jesus Christ who cannot do what God wants him or her to do. To those who feel weary beat up or exhausted in the Christian life. I say to you on behalf of God, please do not lose heart. Take a look at what power is available to you. I have been praying for you that you would be able to see this power more clearly than ever this morning. And as you continue to dive into this book of Ephesians. Hope Inheritance, power. These are the three things we must see if we are to get ourselves in tune with the Lord by knowing him. Now, how can we do it? How do we see these things? And I don't just mean how how can we participate in this hope, inheritance, or power once in a while. No, I mean how can we see these things and keep seeing them day after day when there is so much else to cloud our vision. I want to move on to point two. Two gifts from the Father to help us see. 
Because attempting to see such incredible hope, such glorious inheritance, and such immeasurably great power might be a little bit like looking directly into a solar eclipse for too long after the moon has begun stepping to the side. So we need the right shaded glasses. We need a reflective device so we don't just get ourselves burned to ash. And our kind and generous Heavenly Father has given us two such gifts to help with just that. He is committed enough to us getting a clear sight of Him that He gives us two gifts to make it possible. The heart of this prayer is the three things Paul wants them to see, but bracketing those three things on either side are the two gracious gifts of God the Father that we cannot live without. The first gift, in verse 17, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, is actually the first petition in Paul's prayer. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. And it's no accident that he says, the spirit, or some translations even will say, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, either way. It's no coincidence that he says a spirit. He doesn't simply say, I pray that the father of glory may give you wisdom and revelation. He could have just said that. I want you to have wisdom. No, he says, I want you to have a spirit. I want you to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You can't have wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of God, without the Spirit. This is the same Spirit that he mentions in verse 13, who is the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance. And that Spirit is not only the promise of our future inheritance, verse 17 here, he is also the one who makes it possible for us to know God to begin with. You see, there is no knowledge of God apart from the Spirit of God. We need the Father to give us the gift of the Spirit so we would have the wisdom to understand God's own revelation of Himself that we may know Him. So gift number one is the Holy Spirit. Gift number two comes in verse 22 where he says that God put all things under Jesus' feet And he, get this, gave him, so there's gift language again, just like in verse 17. He gave him as head over all things to the church. This statement comes right after that incredible description of the immeasurable greatness of his power. And God exerts his limitless power to raise Jesus and seat him in the heavenly places. And he delegates that same power to Jesus when he sets him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he puts all things under his feet. And then... Having made Jesus the head over all things, he now gives Jesus to the church. So, verse 23, the church can be Jesus' body, his hands and feet, filled up with all of his great power for the good of the world. 
Gift number two is Jesus, the head over all things. I know a guy who works for an engineering firm in the Washington, D.C. area. He works on code clearance type stuff, and his office literally has a red phone in it. At any moment in the course of their business or their research, they can pick up the red phone and get immediate access to the office of the President of the United States. They can shut down a project with a newly discovered flaw. They can warn of an unexpected vulnerability. They can bring years of planning and projects to a grinding halt with a single call. Friends, by giving you both Jesus and his spirit, God the Father has handed you a red phone. He has set you up with a broadband connection. And he's provided the power strip. Children, how many of you are tired already of hearing about all the things you can't do until you're older? Oh, I have to turn five and then I can go to finally go to school. Oh, I have to be so old to go to camp. Do all these fun things. Oh, I have to wait to play a sport. Oh, I have to wait to drive a car. Well, God has given you already all the gifts you need to make it possible for you to do everything he asks you to do. Friends, God has given you all of these things, not so that you can have your selfish way with him, but so that you can have access to his power as you partner with him to accomplish his purposes in the world. If we only believed this were true, nothing would be impossible for the church of God. So if we receive these two gifts from God, the Spirit and the Son, that grant us a clear vision of our unity with God, our hope, our inheritance, and our power. We can't help but be changed by it. This clear sight of God will fuel Christian unity. And so let me bring this back to the main point of this letter. And I do that by coming to to the beginning of the paragraph, verses 15 and 16. We look at one result for those who see. Paul begins with, for this reason, which looks back on everything he said before that. But he's not only looking back at the blessings from God, he's also responding in verse 15 to the faith of these people, (coughs) excuse me, in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. You see, God the Father, Spirit, and Son have done all these incredible blessings that he laid out. And he says, you've also demonstrated your participation in these things by your faith and your love. And because of all that, for this reason, verse 16, he says, I do not cease. I cannot stop doing two things. Giving thanks for you. Verse 16 and the end of the verse, praying for you. 
And as we've seen, he prays for them to have an even clearer sight of God, which is the thing that provoked their love for one another and his thanksgiving for them in the first place. So check out this result. Look at how this, how this paragraph works. Their clear sight of God empowers Christian unity because their sight of God leads to knowing God, which leads to love for others, which then leads others to give thanks and to pray for more sight, which leads to knowing God, which leads to love for others, which leads to thanks and prayer for more sight. There's this cycle. What he's saying, let me boil this down. He's saying that Jesus is the oboe. He's playing his A so that we can get in tune with him. And as we do so, we end up being in tune with each other. A clear sight of God is the power for Christian unity. This is the very thing that makes true unity possible. You see, they've already seen God. And that's why Paul prays for them to see him more. And so it loops around. There is no other God worthy of your attention. Brothers and sisters, when you get in tune with what God has done in and through Christ, when you have a clear sight of his hope, inheritance, and power, you will look up and you will look around and find yourself in tune with all the other members of this orchestra. The faith and love of the Ephesians stimulated Paul to thanksgiving and prayer. And so also your faith and love will stimulate me and the other folks at GFC to thanksgiving and prayer. And what will we pray for? For you to know God even more, to have a clearer sight of his hope, inheritance, and power. And when that happens, even more people are stimulated to thanksgiving and prayer. So that more people will know him and more people will come together around him. It's like an endless cycle. And before long, we want more and more people to join us in knowing God. And we will then rejoice in them and pray for them. This means that a clear sight of God is the power for Christian unity. If two final applications. First, to the Christian, to those who have trusted in Christ, who are walking with him. Please keep the eyes of your heart fixed on Jesus. This is the power for unity. And finally, to the non-Christian, to the person who is not walking with Jesus, who's not following him or you're not sure. Have you felt hopeless, worthless, or powerless. I want you to know that hope and worth and power are available to you. Turn to Jesus. Trust him today. Join the Lord's orchestra. We're making remarkable music as heaven and earth get closer and closer to one another until Christ returns. All things are being united together in Jesus Christ. And it's time for you to join up with him. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please help us, grant us a clearer sight that we might rejoice, give thanks, and pray for even more 
clear sight. May we delight in the faith and love of one another because we have seen you and we have seen your hope that you've called us to, the inheritance that you have in us and the power that you have granted us access to in Christ Jesus. Father, please grant us your spirit that we might know you and see these things. And please give us more of your son to rule and reign and protect us as we live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.